Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. Palestinian workers have issued calls for solidarity, specifically to their fellow workers inside the imperialist core. That is most of us. They are asking work be done to enlist the labor movement in ending not just the current siege on Gaza, but the occupation of Palestine. These next two guests are answering some of those key demands, which are, at their core, economic disruptions aimed to isolate Israel politically and cut off their well-funded supply of arms. We talked about the blockade of Incas in Toronto on our episode Shutting It Down for Palestine. It was an action organized by a coalition of workers from different organizations who stood side by side outside the facility where technology used in Israeli aggression is made. We will hear what that was like firsthand and how they got there in terms of strategy. But we'll also hear the ideology behind an internationalist struggle for human emancipation, one that focuses on disarming the imperialist powers rather than negotiate with them. Once we get there and agree that an escalation of tactics is needed, the question becomes how to generate the critical mass needed to really disrupt that system, to stop the bombs on Gaza and liberate Palestine for our own liberation. A key component is clearly organized labor. Globally, workers are taking a stand and refusing to transport Israeli weapons or refusing to offload them at major ports. Just as I record this intro, activists in Vancouver are occupying the offices of Zim, Israel's largest shipping line that supplies weapons to the IOF. This is part of the larger block the boat and stop arming Israel actions taking place all across the world. This week also saw activists in Oakland cling to the side of a ship loaded with weapons destined for Israel, a boat that had been used to do the same in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. They prevented it from leaving for nine hours. As the boat left, they chanted, we will see you at the next stop, implying comrades across the water will help stop or at least slow the flow of arms to be used against the Palestinian people. And that's exactly what has been happening. That same boat was stalled up the coast in Tacoma, Washington, where canoes used by Coast Salish Territory activists were blocking the boat from leaving the port. Workers in Barcelona have refused to load shipments bound for Israel. Australian activists have done the same and are planning more for November 11th. This is indeed a global movement. Canadian workers also have a role to play here, too. So we get into that and just how we get them to come along in such a critical moment in the struggle against imperialism. So let's get started. Welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself, please? Hi, uh, I'm Martin. Um, I work as a caretaker. Um, I'm a rank and file member of Toronto Education Workers, QP Local 4400, um, and I'm part of the Communist Workers Circle, communist study group that focuses on blue-collar unionized workers. Hi, my name is Kay. I'm a member of Canada-Philippine Solidarity Organization, CPSO. Uh, CPSO is a group of non-Filipinos, primarily, who organize in solidarity with the National Democratic Revolution in the Philippines against the semi-colonial and semi-feudal control of the Philippines by imperialist countries, uh, primarily the United States, but also Canada, Japan, uh, and China as well. And as you know, the United States uh, happens to be also the biggest supporter of the Zionist entity known as Israel. Um, so there is a certainly certainly a shared struggle between the, the Filipino people and Palestinian people. I'm also a campaign co-chair of the International Legal People Struggle, ILPS Canada, an alliance of anti-imperialist organizations which CPSO is a member of. I attended uh, Inca's action as a representative of ILPS. Its objectives align with our ongoing anti-militarization campaign, and our support for the rights of Palestinians, including their right to resist the occupation by any means necessary. Definitely want to ask you about 
efforts for revolution in the Philippines. But you brought up the Incas protest, so let's actually start there because when I cast out Annette, you folks came in, I needed to talk to people who had escalated the actions in terms of ending the siege on Gaza. We've seen mass actions, we've seen sit-ins, we've seen all kinds, but a blockade in front of a weapons manufacturer here in Toronto, for me, kind of signaled an escalation, a much needed escalation. And we'd seen similar actions, a lot of them in the United Kingdom. And there were some really telling images that came from those that I found inspiring. And I think it answers the call both for, you know, the Palestinian resistance to stop the bombs, right? We can plead with our politicians, but in the end, they they want the bombs to stop falling on them. I think folks can understand why that particular manufacturer was targeted. But when you say that action, K fit with the ILPS's mandate, do you want to get into that a little bit more in terms of what led you to that particular blockade that day? Yeah, so uh, so this action was in response to a call from uh, Palestinian workers, uh, which is a coalition of uh, Palestinian trade unions and community organizations. In their statement, they says, Palestinian trade unions call on our counterparts internationally and all people of conscience to end all forms of complicity with Israel's crimes. Most urgently, halting the arms trade with Israel, as well as all funding and military research. And it goes on to list the demands. There's five of them. One is to refuse to build weapons destined for Israel. And second is to refuse to transport weapons to Israel. And third is to pass motions in their trade unions to this effect. And four, to take action against complicit companies involved in implementing Israel's brutal and illegal siege especially if they have contracts with your institution. Five, pressure governments to stop all military trade with Israel, and in the case of the U.S., funding to it. So I think what's really important in the in this list of demands is that we have these institutions in Canada that are uh, either directly responsible or complicit in the enabling of the genocide in uh, in Palestine. We all uh, we operate under the understanding that Zionism is a product of imperialism. Like I said previously, it's the the United States is the biggest supporter of so-called Israel. But Canada is deeply complicit in it, to say the least. Canada is an imperious country, uh, as Lenin defined it. I'm not going to list them all, qualifications of what imperious country is, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, export of capital, right, as opposed to commodities. Importantly, the dividing up of the world. It's a contest for hegemony and domination uh, among uh you know, some of the biggest capitalist states. No, we've made that case here on the show, and I think the audience would mostly agree with you. I mean, we use colonial tactics at home and abroad. Because I think, like, there's a lot of people that we're encountering in discussions that don't really, they don't fully understand Canada's complicity. I think because they can't understand its motivation. But it's because we don't have a real understanding of our, the level of, arms manufacturing that we do here or the extent that the Canadian government will act on behalf of capital, right? Everyone's always looking for like the Canadian reason, like why would Canada back Israel? Like what is the tie there? And why would they do what we say that they're doing in South America? And it's to facilitate mining to increase our arms trade, right? We already, what was it, 2022, $21 million from the Canadian arms manufacturers, you know, exported to Israel. I I just want to add another number to back up what Kay is saying when he says that the U.S. is a huge supporter of Israel and their military. They call it defense spending, but we won't call it that here. We know better. 55% of U.S. foreign military aid, 55% of all the money that they throw out to armed groups everywhere, 55% of it goes to Israel. I thought that was astonishing. And so when folks ask, like, what role can the West play? Like, what are all these protests doing? What would a Canadian politician even do? Like, they just can't remove themselves that easily. You know, they're intrinsically tied. So I appreciate Kay making making that point. Yeah, I think like our neighbors, I had my neighbor just, I come out and he's like, what are we going to do? What? What's Canada's role in this? And I, like, I went off, but I felt like there's probably a lot of them out there that just... 
think this is none of our business, you know, but it's big business here. I'm gonna just hop to Martin. The Incas protest was a solidarity action, right? It was a bit of an alliance because I know that the labor for Palestine was also there. Labor against the arms trade was there. It was a real collection of folks. That's kind of unusual, I think, for such a subversive action, right? It's easy to get everyone to come out to a rally, but it's hard to convince people to put their name on uh, something more disruptive than that, something that might get bad press, might end up in arrests. That's a jump that not everybody's willing to make yet. But what was it like for your folks getting involved with this and the reasons behind it? Yeah, thank you. Uh, the, so the big three groups organizing this, so far as I could tell, were Labor for Palestine, Labor Against the Arms Trade, and World Beyond War. Um, the way this was organized was very like point-to-point, people who had other people's signal contact um, and who you knew from actions, getting into touch with each other um, and seeing who it is we could get out. Part of, I think, what made this coalition, what made all these groups come together is the fact that it was very much the write-up of the action, what it is you were told, is like, you're showing up here. I wasn't told, I was told about a week out. I wasn't told it was an arms factory, um, but due to the level of secrecy and everything, I figured that's what it was or something along those lines. But the groups were not advertising themselves very heavily in that. One can understand that. So you were you were willing to show up, right? Put it on the line without needing full details. Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The uh, I, I mean, we all know what's going on with Israel yeah. bombing Gaza relentlessly, um, genociding, trying to it seems, liquidate Gaza. I mean, that has to be stopped. We have to do everything in our power to stop that here with the massive amount of military aid that Canada gives, um, as well as other aid. And Incas is one of many points uh, that is doing that. I I approach politics and anti-capitalism with the understanding, to boil it down very heavily, that capitalism only cares about money. There's only so much that begging a politician is going to do if you're not messing up their friend's money in the background. I mean, I think it's a similar approach we have to take to this that we have to take to strike action, right? That you have to fuck up their money so bad that they realize it is not profitable for them to keep doing this stuff. And that is the goal and the hope. And I think the approach we need to be looking at going forward in trying to lay out Palestinian solidarity and solidarity with oppressed peoples of the world. Awesome. We've brought it up a few times. Let's focus on labor's role in all of this. Right. So we see the two of the main groups that organized that blockade against Incas are related to labor. Kind of are they official caucuses within the labor or just kind of loosely formed by interested individuals? I don't know. We should probably have them on here to answer that. But either way, they're unionized workers that think and I'm sure you're going to agree with me, Kay and them, that labor has a role to play in dismantling the arms trade and fighting imperialism. Tell me. Okay, you got a call from workers in in Palestine to take, you know, they had clear demands. And one of those was to pass motions within the trade unions, right, to get unions officially to take a position on this. Is that doable? Is that work that's being done? Or or is it going to be kind of more of like a wildcat? We're seeing a lot of longshoremen unions refusing to offload weapons destined for Israel, disruptions in that way. Can we see Canadian Labour Act this way? Well, I echo uh, what uh, the comrade said earlier about uh, really you got to hit where it hurts the most for the ruling class, you know, the wallet. It's really essential strategically and tactically to target uh, these corporations, um, these, you know, arms manufacturers who are uh, getting rich off the, the misery and the genocide of not only the Palestinians, but oppressed masses of the world. And, you know, at the level of the principle, I uh, echo uh, what Gaston Canafani said. He was a poet and writer and revolutionary activist for the liberation of Palestine that, uh, quote, the Palestinian cause is not a cause for Palestinians only, but a cause for every revolutionary, wherever they are, as a cause of the exploited, 
and oppressed masses in our era. This remains true today. It has been over half a century since he said this, but this era he talks about is the era of imperialism and what Lenin called the highest stage of capitalism. The liberation of Palestine would make a massive contribution to the, the liberation of the working class and oppressed peoples around the world. Mentally or like materially? Um, both, I'd say. I think it would deal a huge blow to the U.S. imperialism and, you know, the creation of the single secular democratic state for everyone in the Palestine would really, to say the least, loosen the grip of the, the U.S.-led Western imperialism in the Middle East, West Asia, but world as a whole. Um, it's nice to think about, isn't it? Like, just sit on that for a second, because that felt good to hear. We're so caught up right now in saving Gaza that I think envisioning what a free Palestine means to the entire world at this point was kind of hard to think about until Kay said that. It would have an immense impact, both a positive one and, and, and a negative one on imperialists, so... Certainly. Just wanted to sit on that feeling for just a second because I think a lot of people agree. Well, like they're nodding, right? They're going, absolutely. It's our duty. Yeah. Yeah, I'm there. I want to figure out how you get people to start doing economic disruption. How are you pulling people along to get to that point? Because I think we're sold on, on its necessity, but there's courage needed, right? To realize. Yeah, that's a. Yeah. And this is like one of these pivotal moments in history that if we did secure a victory, such a visible victory, it would be immeasurably, I don't know how to describe it. You, you guys know what I'm saying? Like that it's such an important goal right now and it feels like it is within our reach, right? Even though it looks awful at the moment. We need more people showing up at facilities like Incas, you know, and there's an Elbit facility in Nova Scotia and probably a million other ways that we could get workers to use their power to really grind it to a halt. How do we get there? Yeah, so to, br to bring it back to the working class, right? This, as I said, this is a call directly coming from the Palestinian workers. Um, even though the, the Palestinian struggle is a struggle for national liberation, right? It concerns not just the working class, but, you know, farmers and Bedouins and, you know, just the dispossessed uh, people in general, you know, if you think about Gaza, the employment, uh, youth unemployment rate is close to 70%. It's a simple definition of the proletariat or the working class doesn't really fit in. So it is a sort of like an attempt at broader class alliance and building a united front. The, the, the workers is looking at a long-term perspective on liberation, not just in Palestine, but, you know, around the world. The, the, the working class is the vanguard of socialism. They control the means of production. They, you know, they create value. And, you know, it's really important to situate this in a, in a theoretical perspective in order to understand the, the, the importance of this action being carried out right now to target the economics of imperialism, right, to the economics of war. And, you know, how, how is it integrated? How is the war industry, you know, arms manufacturer integrated into the workings of imperialism? So on how to get everyone or, or get more workers, uh, get the workers, the, the organizations of labor um, involved in it. We, we, first off, we've seen labor is capable of getting involved. Um, not so much in Canada. As far as I know, the groups, the labor groups that were involved in this are like, they're not a official or under the protection of the larger labor bodies. These are groups, as far as I'm aware, mostly of staffers um, and uh, white collar professionals. So not people on the shop floor so much, not factory workers or stuff like that, which is where you really need that organization to hit in order to massively affect these things. Uh, someone from a university can't shut down can't go on strike and shut down an arms factory. So a big part of getting this going is getting this understanding, these politics to directly to these points, directly to people in factories um, that can make that impact. And we've seen that happen in Italy, in Belgium, in South Africa. Belgium, three million workers all encompassed in these massive unions uh, said they are not building and they are not touching anything going to Israel similar in Italy, similar in uh, South Africa. So it is possible. Now, how it is we get there, I think the victory for Palestine 
is a massive boon for the fight for socialism everywhere. That's a huge part of what keeps me going. I'm not doing this in charity. I'm not doing this in self-sacrifice. That's involved. It exists. But I'm doing this in solidarity. I'm doing this because every single blow against the Canadian imperialist war machine, the NATO imperialist war machine against Israel, is a step towards my own liberation. It's a step towards seeing the friends that I've had since high school get out of working two jobs. It's a step towards not having my rent and grocery bill take up you know, the vast majority of my pay and my life. And I think that's a really big part of working class politics that a lot of people don't really get at and have a hard time explaining and seeing. And I think a large part of that is that they're not necessarily understanding that. And that's why we emphasize, you know, theory and reading so much. Your brain tells your body what to do. I saw the transition happening. So when you're talking about bringing the knowledge and the politics to the shop floor, I know that you are part of the Communist Worker Circle reading group. And, you know, we go from blockading weapons manufacturers to talking about a reading group. Some may think like these are not the same tactics and it's all part of the same class war, right? It, it is part of how you get there. And... I think, and I know you know this, I know you know people look at Marxist reading groups and roll their eyes and have some critiques around the accessibility of learning theory. So I'm going to give you some space to, yeah, oh yeah, don't you worry, I wouldn't throw something like that and not let you say but, but take a moment to kind of talk about the importance of doing the educating together, you know, collectively. So we'll let Kay hit on this as well, because I'm sure part of the internationalist movement is convincing people it needs to be an internationalist movement and beyond, right? A lot of people are even afraid of the word revolution. So let me let you defend your reading group first, because I kind of, you know, threw all that trash that people probably throw on you. And I'm sure you've heard it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I completely agree. <laughs> I did not expect that. <laughs> That's my time as a communist has not been very long now. I got into it. I was introduced to it in the last round of my union bargaining and have gotten more and more involved and more um, studied and active over the time. Um, so this was like four years ago now. And the first few reading groups I joined really sucked. <laughs> it was very much a go read this on your own. Um, and then come back with questions. And then there's my ADHD blue collar self, eyes crossed, staring at this book, trying to not like run away from it. You need to study, buddy. Yeah, well, and this is an issue that a lot of blue collar workers have. Um, we are used to working with our hands and we are very much kept away from academics or reading or anything like that. Like I finished high school, I didn't go back to a book. At that time, it had been two, three years since I'd picked up a book. And so the approach we have in the communist worker circle, the CWC, is we read out loud and we discuss as we go. It's slow, but as long as you're doing it consistently and you're talking with people, like you get through it. You get through a lot of reading. The books you're were reading, like these are dense, dense books. So if you're staying consistent with them, you can actually get through a whole lot of theory with that very quickly. The other thing it really does, which can be a bit of an issue with like an academic approach to this study, is it keeps us from kind of learning this stuff in like 100-year-old English or an academic language or stuff like that. I like to say we learn it one time in the language of Marx, and then we learn it another time in the language of the proletariat. I like that. And that's the over the course of discussion, right? So that you can bring it to the workplace, you can bring it to conversations at the bar, you can bring it to wherever it is you're at, and it doesn't sound or feel alien to the workers. <laughs> like you're trying to indoctrinate people? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and there's like... There's levels to that, like as you become more accustomed to someone, you don't want to like it's never about dumbing it down or anything like that. We we trust the working class to be able to understand this stuff, to be able to take on, you know, a new word here and there or whatever. Because people inherently feel it right. Sometimes they just need the words to explain it. But, 
even when you talk to, you know, your conservative neighbor about issues, like they feel oppressed, like they talk, they, they just don't know where to punch sometimes, right? They've been taught to punch down and, you know, you got to kind of redirect them, but they, they do feel oppressed as workers, all of them. Yep. Yes. I can see how people quickly come along once, you know, they have the theory. I paid for my education. Like I went to political science is my degree. So I guess we could call those reading circles of sorts. You know, that isn't accessible for everybody. I think a lot of people get frustrated, especially when we talk about the labor movement and why they're not more progressive as a whole, right? As though it's like some leftist group and not just a a representation of a portion of the working class, right? And so how to bring their politics along is a part of a lot of the discussions, right? And how we get a general strike when we need it. How do we get more militant leaders to the top of unions who understand what their role is, (laughs) what their role's supposed to be, right? And a lot of that has to do with getting people that political education that they no longer get. Uh, particularly at CPSO, ILPS in general, but particularly at CPSO, you know, we take political education very seriously. Um, you know, we sort of inherit the tradition of the, the revolutionary movement in the Philippines uh, where we do this thing called uh, EDs, uh, which stands for Educational Discussions. There are certain texts that all members of the organization have to go through, you know, read and discuss. Uh, one of them is Philippine society and revolution. The Philippines, through a Marxist perspective, how the country developed and how, how it became colonized, uh, first by Spain, the United States, and Japan, back to the United States, and how that revolutionary movement developed in response to that, you know, with the desire to create a, you know, a new society liberated Philippines, moving towards socials. And another text is called Araring Activista. Uh, in, in Tagalog, it means activist studies. It, it's more uh, a practical text. It's more about organization. You know, it's about democratic centralism, just, you know, the Marxist method of leadership, combining democracy and, you know, centralized leadership, a committee system. So this is where we discuss more of like, what it means to be an activist, how we should organize, you know, how we should advance the revolution, how, how do we work with the masses, and things like that. These are really important we go through. And we also do other, like, EDs that are, you know, catered to particular topics, like migrant workers, peasants, and, you know, what have you, right? So that's the sort of tradition I come out of. And I'm quite proud of that and really clarified how I think about activism and organizing in general. And another point that I want to make is that, you know, we've been talking about theory and practice you know how do we synthesize them how do we you know have a clear understanding of its interrelation their their interrelation and i just want to say that you know the practice itself can be educational so talking about this particular action right learning on the line you mean yes exactly you know putting the boots on the ground and um you know and what have you so this action you know uh like other actions that i participated in the past uh disrupting business as usual really exposes the, the contradictions of capitalism, imperialism, and settler colonialism that are usually hidden under the facade of normals. These actions really explore them out in the open. At this action, we saw an unhinged anger of Inca employees and executives, and who all happen to be like hardcore uh, pro-Zionists, terrorizing, the, terrorizing us, terrorizing the protesters, uh, snatching and destroying our signs and banners. They actually took our ILPS banner and ripped it apart. And they did that uh, to other uh, comrades there as well. And lots of pushing and shoving, uh, not to mention they all were protected and escorted by the armed agents of the state, the Toronto police. Despite all the violence that these, you know, the Zionists committed against us, it was us, seven of, seven of us, who got arrested. None of them, for all the pushing and shoving, none of them got arrested. So, you know, obviously don't have to lecture you about this complicity of the police. Yeah, it was really out in the open, really exposed it. And it was, I think, big learning moment for all of us. And in a way, we really reenacted, right? The, the violence Palestinians experience every day yeah. inside so-called Israel and the occupied territories. You know, it, it's a bit of exaggeration, I admit, but, you know, it does really kind of, to, to quote uh, the, this old slogan by the Weather Underground, you know, uh, bring in the war home, like bring in the occupation of Palestine back to Canada. Actions like this are, you know, hugely educational. It's definitely was educational for me. And there's, yeah, there's a lot we can learn from it. So 
I think you've demonstrated, and I know before we started recording, Martin spoke of his experience at Victoria Park Collegiate protest, counter-protest, to protect trans youth and had similar reaction from ca- from protesters antagonizing and being protected by police and then the arrests being one-sided. So certainly anybody who goes to these actions and lives and experiences this, you know, the mask is gone, right? Quick, quickly, you understand what police are actually there for when you do experience. So I totally understand what you're talking about, but it, it drives home the point there that Although escalated tactics are needed, community defense actions are needed, they aren't without risk because you are going up against an incredible machine, right? And they all work and connected with one another. And it surprises me that the employees, that workers felt the need to do that, you know, like they just had no no class consciousness whatsoever. I mean, it, it does surprise me and it doesn't, but obviously the police response doesn't surprise me at all. How do you prepare, like, let's get a little practical. How do you prepare people going into these actions, right, to stay as safe as possible? Or it's a tough one, right? Because when you put that call out, you are asking a lot of people. So I think there is, as an organizer, I would think it would be an inherent responsibility of mine to at least adequately prepare them. I know some legal fund solidarity actions are necessary, but I'm talking about like before the fact. So do either of you have any kind of tips for people going to actions that are going to be met with resistance? I mean, all of our actions are kind of now being met with resistance, but I mean police force, right? So anytime a railway is blocked, anytime real economic stops are put in, injunctions surely follow, and then police action. So, Martin? So I think, first and foremost, no one there, even at the point of getting contacted, no one there was new to this. I recognize a great number of the faces from previous actions and this, that, and the other thing. Everyone had the experience to be there, and that was part of that approach to organizing of going point to point you have to go in with the understanding you have to tell people that there's the possibility you get arrested there is the possibility that stuff gets violent this protest was in some way the the use of cars so there are two lines i was at one that was more involved in blocking cars at the front i've blocked a lot of cars in my time these guys were putting the cars into the line I have never had a car make contact with me. It happened three times on this line, Um, as well as one time where a car sped by so quick within a half meter, one of the protesters then swerved up onto the side of the road right next to our lines in front of a police, in front of the police. Uh, I also wanted to say I don't as any military office um, and also Incus in Canada does a lot of like moving money. They have massive armored vehicles. They go pick up ATMs and stuff. They have a massive security force there, um, as you'd expect. From what I saw, the workers that I saw that were aggressive. But from what I saw, the workers were sitting across the street like, that's weird, eh? Um, they were not the aggressive ones. It was managers. It was security. It was lead hands who were really attacking our lives. I was going to say, I won't lie, like as a worker, if I showed up and there was a picket line across the gate to get in, I'd be kind of stoked, right? Like, I mean, that's my personal bias, but yeah, playing into that. And to your point though, Martin, you want to bring people along though, right? So yes, definitely warn people that they're going to be arrested. Having access to someone willing to act as a legal representative is also kind of critical work to do ahead of time. I'll warn folks, I mean, back in the day when we used to organize, I mean, like back in G20 days, we we would write uh, the number of legal aid on our arm. We now know better not to do that. You need to memorize a phone number or write it somewhere inconspicuous because police will use that to target you. But yes, mentally preparing people is important and and training people even if you feel like they're prepared but i understand like there's some actions like this where you really just gotta 
find some trusted individuals. And I think that's a, quite how the coordinated sit-ins worked across Canada. A lot of people are like, why didn't I know about this? I wanted to do it. And the reality is, is you got to make sure those are absolutely trusted comrades that understand the risk and have a modicum of understanding on how to react in those situations. Right. But it is like, if you want to pull people along, we got to make sure like they, they're not just fired up because they know, but they feel like they're equipped as well. You can't prepare yourself for anything, but hearing about the violence on the lines, um, that has just been an increasing trend. Um, and then the other big thing uh, is making sure that there's a clear defined leadership um, on the lines or in the action, who when you don't know what's going on, what it is you're supposed to be doing, that you can turn to and, you know, ask what's up. Like in, in the Angus action, that was the... There were two picket captains we were all instructed to go to. And that is huge for making it possible for new people to join up. Find that person with a tattered up flag when things get get heavy. F- find the person with, you know, busted boots. Um, <laughs> you know the type. Who's been marching and, and ask them what's up. Well... They usually, they should be wearing a reflective vest if they know their shit, right? At least. The bottom line is that there's no like 100% safety, right? Like there's no risk-proof protest action. I think of what Mao said, revolution is not a dinner party, right? There's there's always, you know, there's always going to be risk. There's always going to be a risk of arrest, doxing, and what have you. And, you know, certain actions have definitely increased the risk than others. So I think that's the bottom line. So, you know, it shouldn't really let us paralyze and not do anything. Uh, the, the stake is really high. However, you know, there are precautions we can take to, you know, to, to quote the often used slogan, you know, we keep each other safe. That's the name of our first episode. Oh, okay. Um, you know, go in groups, don't go alone, you know, to especially to actions like these, right? Uh, have a signal chat, communicate, and have a rendezvous spot, discuss what the, the plans are. You know, you know the recent rallies and marches that I went with my comrades, you know, we first we gather in a big group and form a, like a body system, uh, smaller groups, and, you know, we stay together. You know, don't leave each other, don't wander out, just stick together. You know, it really requires organization and a collective effort to, to ensure the security of, of your comrades. Yeah, that's what I recommend to do in addition to what uh, you and uh, Martin said already. Yeah, I will definitely link in the show notes some of our, you know, the infographics that folks have put together for, you know, basic safety at protests. I want to go back to something Kay said at the beginning of the interview, because like I said, I think a lot of people are sold on the need to escalate actions, right? They've been to a few marches. Politicians are moving incrementally slow. The weapons flow has not stopped. And Kay, you mentioned the need to resist by any means necessary. You can't drop something like that without me giving you the space to explain that. I feel like I know what you mean. And I feel a lot of people, and we've talked about it on the show, for people not to shy away from Palestinian right to armed resistance as part of capitulating in this moment, as part of just trying to get more people along for the ceasefire. And the demands to disarm Hamas would be to remove all matter of defense from Palestinians in Gaza. So we're friends on this front, right? You're not you're not going to find me arguing with you on that point. But what people are going to hear sometimes, right, is what has been weaponized against the left in recent days and weeks, particularly, you know, Fred Hahn has a good high profile example of then almost being accused of celebrating the most horrific acts of an armed group, any armed group, right? And so that makes bringing people along difficult, right? This, the narrative that's going around, around Palestinian resistance, right? You, you've heard it, you felt it, right? So it's an uncomfortable place to be right now to assert that point. So expand on it a little bit. I think it's really important to, to know especially now uh, with the barrage of uh, propaganda coming from the, the Zionist state and its allies, imperialist allies, media wing, Hamas is one, only one 
organization among others uh, who are resisting the occupation. Uh, there are other organizations that are like more secular, or even some of them are even more uh, more conservative than Hamas, right? So we have Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, Democratic Front of the Liberation of Palestine, and Islamic Jihad, and, and many others. The Palestinian resistance is, is a united front. It's a national united front. Uh, you know, they may have some disagreements at the level of ideology, but they all agree on resisting it, resisting the occupation and the genocide by any means necessary. You know, obviously by any means necessary goes both ways, right? We all know that there is a variety of tactics employed to politically isolate the Zionist entity. The point is to make them look unreasonable, to put it mildly, and, you know, they're the ones who are doing aggression. It's becoming clear and clear every day that they're breaking all international law you can think of. You know, any any anyone with any any sense of humanitarian conscience would object to it. But we also at the same time have to, to acknowledge that these resistance organizations are at the forefront of the resistance. You know, there is a telegram channel called Resistance News Network where they update every tactical operation. Statements coming out of the political bureau, it's all there. It's Basically, my phone has been ringing nonstop. Like these nonstop notifications coming from. This. So, if folks haven't subscribed to it, I recommend, highly recommend, uh, signing up to it. But yeah, these these are the people we should be listening to because they're on the front line. You know, we hear a lot about ceasefire, but at this point, none of these organizations are endorsing ceasefire. So, you know, which makes sense because you know ceasefire impl- uh, implies their you know, two belligerent parties involved in armed conflict, which is true to a certain extent, but it's not that the, the power dynamic is completely disproportional. There's only one side that is committing genocide. You know, there's only one side that are killing thousands and thousands of children, you know, and they even call it like mowing the grass, right? Like it's it's fascism plain and simple. It doesn't really make any sense at this point to, to ask the resistance to stop firing. We need to demand Stop the bombings of Gaza, right? Stop the massacres. Stop the genocide. I want to just develop on that point for a second because that's going to be hard for people to hear, right? Because that's the like one message you've been able to get liberal, some liberals to utter. And it's like this this point, right? This like if we could just get them to demand a ceasefire, you know, they're good, right? That's all we need Biden to do. One, we shouldn't be celebrating such a small, small gesture in terms of ending the occupation. But it's that issue of ceasefire or no ceasefire, because one would think there is only one call, right? Like it it does seem pretty united here in the West that folks are demanding a ceasefire. But what they're actually asking is for the bombs to stop dropping on their heads. And folks need to remember in the sense of the occupation, that's not over. And we still assert that there's the, uh, they have a right to resist the occupation with arms, with violence. I'm not going to get into what kind of violence that it's an illegal occupation. They can resist it. If a ceasefire is called, the bombs may stop dropping on Gaza, but the resistance still needs to remain. So what do they do? They will be in violation of a ceasefire when they start to resist again, when they need to resist again, right? Because they're going to need to resist again. They're still under occupation. Life is not going to get better in Gaza, especially now, right? So the need for a free Palestine has never even been more important. So there's no way you can turn to this network, right? So thank you for making that very important point that it's not just Hamas, that it is a coalition of people of all ideological, because that's used as a gotcha, right? They're very conservative. How can you be backing Hamas and and their resistance and and whatnot? We're, We're backing a Palestinian collective resistance that is determined by Palestinians, Right. And so I understand a ceasefire. This is me like pleading with the audience, right? Because I know that my guests are, they understand. Yes, a ceasefire. Yes, we want what is happening in Gaza to stop. But you have to understand the importance of, of Kay making that point of how that frames the entire conflict then. Everyone's always searching for a word. Like conflict doesn't seem adequate. It's not a war, right? So a ceasefire technically isn't the term. But it would really hamper the ability for Palestinians to resist after that. And it would only take the smallest fucking excuse from Israel to say that the ceasefire had been broken and then, and then whatever they do would be justified fully, right? Because it would be like, they broke the ceasefire. We finally agreed to that. We were reasonable. They would come off looking reasonable and they would be able to continue their erasure of Gaza after that. Because the armed resistance will not stop. 
even if some leaders get into a room and sign ceasefire papers, or if that's how it fucking happens, I don't even know these days, right? You know, that won't matter to the people of Palestine who are losing their land in the West Bank and are continually confined in Gaza. Especially now, you got to picture Gaza, it's cut in half. Israel's bragged this morning about cutting it in half. So they won't ever relent that line. You are going to have a North and South Gaza if they even let Palestinians back in the North. And so surely, surely armed resistance will be necessary. I didn't know if we'd get around to that point. We've kind of been tossing it around on the show, but Kay, you really set us up to kind of get at that. And again, it's one of those another uncomfortable spots because we feel like we're building on ceasefire language, right? We're trying to get everyone to come to that point, but that point isn't enough, right? Linda Sarsour, she she had a great speech that I screen recorded because, you know, it did something for me there. But she's like, after the puck, you know, after the ceasefire, you cannot turn your back on us. We are still here. We are still resisting. Like, this is not, that is not over. Yeah, I've been grappling with that myself. So I appreciate you bringing it up, Kay. Martin, you've had your hand up for so long. I feel bad. But I, hey, I needed to let go on that. No, absolutely. That's, I mean, I think that's, the ceasefire demand in the West is the biggest political question we have right now. And I think um, figuring that out is integral to developing harder tactics um, and to solidifying resistance here. I wanted to come in with a quote first off by Walter Rodney, who's an Afro-Guyanese revolutionary. By what standard of morality can the violence used by a slave to break his chains be considered the same as the violence of a slave master? I think that's a really important way to approach this, a way to consider the whole situation. I have been uh, skeptical and I'm now pretty solidly opposed to the ceasefire demand. I think that is a both sides argument and a both sides position. Encased in the idea of a ceasefire is Palestinians dropping their guns. There are situations in which a ceasefire is necessary and correct. I am for stopping the bombs on Gaza. I am for beating Israel here at home, cutting off their military support. But an internationally mandated, a UN mandated or agreed upon ceasefire, I don't think it makes sense in the current time. So like a ceasefire, it's not this ideological thing. Everyone comes, shakes hands, it's cool. It's usually put in place or agreed upon that uh, there's a protectorate put in place here. Who's going to be the protector of Palestine in the world today? Who is it that the U.S. is going to agree to, to allow to be the protector and the Palestinians to agree to be the protector? You have historically, you have a couple different Arab nations coming in to be the protector of Palestine um, and then not caring as Israel goes and takes it on. And also, who is it that has the military power to face this massive military base in the West? Like the, the people who maybe are separate enough in this, that aren't pro-US enough in this, are never going to be allowed to be the arbiter of the ceasefire. So it's going to be Palestine relying on people who have funded their genocide. And I think that's really a, like, I don't think that can happen functionally. We also know we've all known about Palestine and researched Palestine in this last little bit enough to know exactly what you were saying. Whatever Israel is not going to stop. There have been line drawn, lines drawn on the map, and Israel has always pushed forward beyond them. The state of Israel is going to continue to take out Palestine. And if it's not the state actively doing it, they're endorsing settlers to do it. What's going to happen in a ceasefire is that settlers are going to continue to attack. There's going to be occasional bombings. It's going to re revert to what it was last year, where there's only a few hundred Palestinians dying constantly and a few hundred getting taken to prison camps instead of the thousands a day. But then once the next October 7th happens, once the next time a olive farmer shoots back because there's 100, or 100 Israeli settlers coming at their house, it's going to be Hamas attacked civilians. It's going to be Palestine broke the ceasefire attacking civilians. And it's going to return exactly to where it is today, if not more so, because we have to remember that on October 7th, Israel was the weakest militarily it has been in a very long time. And after that reminder, everyone in the West who supports Israel has been pumping money in to Israel. So over the course of the ceasefire, 
over the course of whatever that is, Israel is going to remilitarize, get stronger, and the possibilities for effective resistance are going to become smaller and smaller. So if we're talking freeing Palestine and we're talking supporting the resistance, I understand where it comes from. You see the atrocities being committed and you need it to stop. I, I don't think a lot of people understand that ceasefire means both sides drop the guns. We see it and we say we want our guns to stop. And I am for that. Yes, it, the common narrative is very frustrating to me that Hamas must disarm, but we wouldn't even fathom asking that of of Israel, despite the differential in casualties, civilian casualties. Like, it's state-sanctioned violence only, right? Everyone swallows it, even though, you know, anybody who has stepped back and looked at it, we... <laughs> We throw our hands up in the air and go, are you guys serious? Can you not see the hypocrisy? But, you know, we're so trained to only see state violence as the only legitimate violence, right? And everyone else is a terrorist. Even folks that should know better still kind of swallow that line whole. But we're, we're eating away at it bit by bit. But M Martin brought us kind of full circle again to, yes, that is a good point. Israel will likely be more armed after this because we've seen pledges of support and billions more going. Like, I just kind of scoffed when you said that, though, like when they were at their weakest. I'm like, well, <laughs> they spend 12% of their budget on the military. Like, they spend more per capita on their military than anywhere else. Like, they're kind of close to South Korea, but still not even close. Per capita, not even close to Russia. And they need help. So full circle, we're back to cutting off the weapons supply for everyone. <laughs> well, going back to our politicians over and over again for every kind of incremental change, perhaps isn't the answer, but a more internationalist movement like the ILPS and other internationalists propose. But do you want to kind of, where do we go from here? comment. I don't, you don't have to tell me what's going on in your signal chat, or you can, <laughs> if there's any, but where do folks go? Uh, Pan National Day of Action is planned for November 12th. That's still six days away from the day that we're recording this. Where do we go in terms of really disrupting imperialism and more specifically the arms trade? Yeah, I just wanted to sort of add to what, uh, what the comrade said earlier. There's a saying in the National Democratic Movement in the Philippines. The key is to be firm in principle, but flexible in tactic. Uh, there's a lot of similarity similarities between the the Palestinian resistance and the National Democratic Movement, namely that there are two aspects to the movement. In you know in the Philippines, uh, the movement divides into legal mass movement represented by various mass organizations uh, like Bayan Philippines, Anak Bayan, and uh, Gabriela, and there are many, many other organizations that represent particular sectors of Philippine society. These are the legitimate uh, mass organizations that, you know, relate directly to the masses, uh, mostly in the cities. And there is another aspect to it, which is an underground uh, armed struggle led by the Communist Party of of the Philippines, New People's Army, which is a armed uh, mass organization of the, it's a guerrilla army of the, the movement. And there's also the National Democratic Front of the Philippines. So these three organizations constitute a sort of triangle of the underground uh, revolutionary movement. And the all, all three are outlawed. Uh, they're illegal in the Philippines, of course, in other uh, countries as well. I can only imagine the penalty would be stiff. Philippines is known for quite the law and order approach. I use scare quotes there, but... Yeah, so we have uh, uh, the the son of uh, Marcos, uh, you know, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. He is the, you know, the di Marcos dynasty is back in power. Also, you know, together with a uh, daughter of Rodrigo Duterte, who was notorious for killing people left and right, just, you know, take, you know, quote unquote, cleaning up drug addicts from the streets, uh, criminalizing activists, you know, being a rabid anti-communist, just to name a few, right? But that's, you know, throughout the history, you know, they're, they're, these are the puppet regimes of imperialism, the US, Canada, uh, and other states. My point is that 
these three, you know, the underground component is the primary field of struggle. They are the vanguard of the revolution. What the, the legal mass movement does is to highlight the, the, the root cause, you know. A lot of Filipinos people prefer that there is no armed conflict. You know, they prefer that there is there's justice, right? You know, there's no peace without justice. The the objective of the legal mass movement is to to highlight the underlying issues, underlying relations of exploitation and oppression created by imperialism, the the, the, the root cause of the armed struggle, right? Uh, in a word, to to highlight the legitimacy of the armed struggle. It is a just struggle for liberation and for socialism. That's what is needed to bring bring justice to Filipino people. Uh, so there's yeah, two aspects of it. The idea is to politically isolate the Philippine state. You know, it be- make them look very unreasonable and very, they're the ones that were committing all the injustice. They're the PR firm of the movement. Yeah. They're getting the talking points out and politically positioning the movement. Yes? Yeah, not necessarily yeah, PR, but like... They do the concrete uh, mass work, you know, mass organizing with the, you know, the working class and dispossessed masses, you know, peasants also, um, women, youth, uh, many others, right? So they're not simply doing PR, but they, they're two components of the movement. Even though they're separate, they represent, they strive for the same goal, right? The, 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 the liberation of the Philippines from imperialism, semi-feudalism and bureaucratic capitalism. The third one is kind of like a very corrupt form of capitalism represented by the close, very close tie between government officials and bureaucrats with the private farms and uh, landed estates, you know, still operates on the sort of, uh, with a mechanism inherited from the, the, the era of Spanish colonialism, like haciendas and, you know, plantations and what have you, right? You know, bringing it back to the Palestinian resistance, I think there's a similar dynamic at play here, you know, there's armed resistance that is the forefront of the struggle, but there's a various other organizations like Palestinian workers, right? That is putting out the call that they're, you know, they're different in tactics, but they stri- they're striving for the same goal. One notable difference is that the Philippines is semi-colonial and Palestine is colonial. It's directly occupied by hostile, hostile colonial power. Whereas the Philippines, it's formally independent, you know, uh, I know when you say semi, it means it, to me, it sounds like half, but it's just like it, it's really appearances sake. Right. It, it's a formality. Exactly. Precisely. Yeah. Because it, in the material life of a Philippine worker, it's colonial. The difference notwithstanding, there is a you know the similarity in tactics and strategy that these two movements employ. And I think our job here in the Imperial Corps is in the legal sphere, educate the people about the, the, the legitimacy of the armed struggle, right? If we don't want Hamas and other resistance organizations to exist, the state of Israel has to dissolve and become a one democratic, secular state for everyone, you know, whether Jewish, Arabs, Palestinians, similar in the Philippines. If you don't want this armed conflict to exist, this semi-feudal, semi-colonial system has to dissolve. And Philippines have to be genuinely democratic has to be liberated from the imperialism first so it can move towards social so yeah the point is to basically our job is to educate people about the right of armed struggle the resistance is just and must be supported and we have to really nail that point to to everybody so in terms of moving uh, moving forward where do we go from here so ILPS has a, a active anti-war campaign, uh, anti-militarization campaign around three points. One is uh, three point demands. One is Canada out of NATO. Uh, second is the stop the technical support for re- uh, reactionary regimes, uh, including the Zionist regime, uh, the Philippine state, and Saudi, Saudi, Saudi Arabia. Do you guys have a list? The list goes on. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm like, I imagine that's a long list. <laughs> It's like 196 countries. It's probably like 160 of them. And third demand is the stop the arms trade. So this is what drove me to this action, right? It, it, it's consistent with the campaign. And actually, we co-organized the, the Kansak protest in Ottawa in late May with uh, War Beyond War. It was ILPS, Canada, and War Beyond War that brought put on the protest. It happens every year. It's been going on for decades, actually. You know, it was also very educational. Like I said earlier, it was, you know, we confronted a lot of these people in suits just walking into the venue of the, some of the biggest 
armed tra arms trade show in the world. You know, the police was violent towards us. Like they were escorted and protected by the police. Same thing. That was part of our campaign as well. And we work with various other organizations who don't necessarily share our politics to oppose, uh, you know, to put forward these demands and, you know, really fight imperialism in the belly of the beast. And yeah, November 8th is the International Day of Action Against the arms companies, weapons companies prof profiting from the genocide in Palestine. Their actions planned all over North America and beyond. The LPS Canada is responding to this call by the, the resist US-led war mo movements. Uh, so they're the initiator of the day of, day of action. So it's actually days of action. It's, there are also actions plans on the 9th as well. But you know, this struggle is obviously continuing right beyond these two days. So. Yeah, if you're interested in learning more about ILPS, if your organization are, is interested, because ILPS is an alliance of organizations. So if your organization's interested, uh, find us on social media. We're on both Instagram and Facebook. Um, Don't worry about dropping that. I will make sure everyone is linked back to both of your, your work and your organizations so that they can learn more about you, but also perhaps get involved in what you're doing? Um, yeah, on my end, we focus more so on labor work, um, organizing within labor. Labor's response to this has been sad. Um, most of labor seems more, has put more effort into beating down Fred Hahn for not criticizing uh, Hamas, first, foremost, and above everything, than it has doing anything to help Palestinians or even being pacifists and taking both sides. Functionally, they have taken a pro-Israeli stance. And that's despite the vast number of trade unionists I know and like going to marks, marches. I'm seeing a lot of union hats. I'm seeing a lot of union jackets, but no union flags because people and trade unionists are scared about the repercussions that we're going to receive from our unions for not backing the Canadian imperialist government. Um, that is pathetic because it's the same Canadian imperialist government that votes us back to work um, and breaks strikes. It's the same imperialist government that's been promising things to workers for generations now and has never done any of that, regardless of what party it is. Orange, red, or blue, doesn't matter who. That's a t-shirt. <clears throat> and we need to get through that. The workers... The Palestinian youth movement of North America is right now the biggest mobilizer of workers that is out there, despite the unions not being on board with it. And so breaking through that, I think it's twofold. It's the political, it's getting over, because I think the unions see the ceasefire demand for exactly what it is, um, and they're using that. It's a both sides argument. It's a both sides position. Um, and when you're for both sides, or when you oppose both sides equally, and why do you do anything? So getting over that politically, I think, is of massive importance. And then it's also building enough power from the base, from not trying to rush through and go to the OFL or QP National, but from your local, from your building that you work at and demanding or even just taking flags from a steward and showing up to these marches, not as individuals, but as part of a collection of workers, as part of a union, and demonstrating to, you know, the politicians of labor who think or who understand, really, at this point, that if they step up, they're kind of going to be alone. They're not going to have the support because they don't see that support. So building from the base, showing that if you stand up to Israel, if you stand up for Palestine, that your not going to be thrown out of the house of labor because we have so many people that have your back and that's the way we have to build in labor that's how we're going to get to the point of forcing the ofl to say no we're not moving any any arms for israel we're not building any arms for israel that's how we're going to get to the point of not a few hour long picket but having picket lines set up at incas every single second of every single day um, until Palestine is free. That's how we're going to get to the point of really taking out uh, the war machine that is Canada. And so that's the goal. Slowly but surely, I've gotten two, three co-workers out to Palestine marches. So a long way to go. But that's the 
I mean, I think that's the next step for escalation on the labor front. Yes, Martin. Please remember, it's not your job to bring everybody along. So those are victories when you bring people along. That personal work, that local work is often a lot harder, right? It's more intimate and it does require that kind of heavy lifting that you have to do sometimes. Discussions, hard discussions. Again, I hope our audience is a little bit better equipped to have some of those discussions with people because they've heard from the both of you. I thank you very much for coming on the show and and for the work that you do on the ground. I feel like we could talk about this and so many other tangents, right? I feel like we could have probably pulled like three or four episodes out of here. I wasn't sure what I was going to focus in on, but we hit some really key points. And yeah, I'm grateful for this discussion. So thank you, Kay. And thank you, Martin. And please keep up your good work. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Solidarity. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.